This is TDPS. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring. It's available wherever eBooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Okay, are you done opening things? You just started opening five different I'm packages. Getting, I, I have a box of, of uh, lemon drops and cellophane <laughs> that I'm going to individually unwrap all of them at once. Like an ASMR thing? Right. I, yeah. It should take up most of the rest of this episode, which will be... An ideal choice, I think. I think given what we have staked out to talk about today, okay. that would be so a you know wonderful we, choice. Christopher usually does his disclaimer where he says you don't have to watch it in order to... No. Oh we God. really think you shouldn't. You should. You don't <laughs> watch what we're, we're going to talk about We're recommending that you just listen to us, take it as a warning, um, and then don't watch. It's not like The Ring. You won't kill yourself afterwards, <laughs> but you'll want to. <laughs> um. Okay, how do we how do we preface this? Okay. Um... Vincent Van Gogh was an artist. <laughs> a great artist, right? He was a great artist. Great artist. And Willem Dafoe is actually a really great actor. Okay. Um, and uh, Rupert Friend, wow, he's he's better looking than this, but so the makeup is great. Right. I can't. Um, okay, here's And Julian little... Schnabel is actually, I hear, a pretty good artist. Not a great filmmaker, but in our I opinion. don't think he should make any more movies. I think he should stop. I haven't seen any of his other movies. They may be very different than this, but this was not a great movie. Um, what we wanted to do this is April showers bring Van Gogh flowers month. We went to Amsterdam last month, and we've been talking about it all month. Um, so we thought we were doing two true crime TV clubs this month that are about the Van Gogh legacy, if you will. Right. Another one is next week. We did one last week. So we thought, why not do a movie as a pairing with those? The- <laughs> and the other biopic was this creaky old Kirk Douglas movie with Anthony Quinn and, you know, I don't know, Zsa, Zsa Gabor. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Ricardo Monteblon. Maybe. Who knows? Charo. And- Charo, yes. Yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah, it's everybody's in it somewhere. Yeah, it's like the love boat does Van Gogh. Yes. Um, no, it's called. we decided L- not to and we're, we wish we But hadn't. wait, before you speak past it, that old movie is called Lust for Life. Right. Was actually they showed a clip of it in the special we talked about last week. Before I speak past it, <laughs> speed past it, speed past, speed past it. it. Okay. You move your head moves very fast, Eric Shaw Quinn. It is very it's, rapid. It's busy thinker. up there. You busy thinker, busy talker. Very busy. Um, so we didn't do that, even though I saw Lust for Life as a child, and that was a mistake. And we should have watched Lust for Life. No, I would think I had a much better experience. Than I did watching this. So I will tell you this. Um, I did find Time Magazine did a fact versus fiction article about this movie. Ooh. Which was interesting. That's that's Dirty Pool. That's <laughs> I love that. In your notes, uh, in your show notes uh-huh. over there. And other than that, um, I this was a, this was painful to have to watch. This was really not what I was expecting. For one it didn't seem to address very much of Van Gogh's life. It seemed to be like a little kind of pie slice isn't the word I'm looking for, almost a microscope lens on the last sort of most tormented moments of it. And even those didn't seem as fully fleshed out as they could have been. 
the style of the movie was incredibly pretentious. And the choice was made to follow every actor around with something, I guess, that was a version of a steady cam, right? Like, so it looked like they were, the camera was either up their nose or chasing them through a field, none of which conveyed the grandeur and the sort of ex- the scope of Van Gogh's work. He's out in all these outdoor elements, but the way it's shot, it's really almost like the camera's wrestling with him. And I don't know if that was about trying to emulate his mental illness or his struggles. I don't know. But it didn't work for me, and it didn't. And I didn't think it was very appropriately expressive of the work that was involved in the movie. And um, I thought, uh, I think in real life, Van Gogh was far better looking than Willem Dafoe. You know, he and, and not as and something that they say in the article, not as much of an outsider as he was made out to be. He actually had friends among other artists, as you said on our discussion last week. He was. Um, well regarded by other artists, yes. he may not have been a famous painter during his lifetime. But, but that's the part of it. It's the the thing that has really come up more and more as we've looked more into him is how brief his career as a painter was. He was a, a he was a pastor mm-hmm. for a while. Like his father was a pastor. He was thinking he was going to be a religious man. His entire painting career is like less than ten years. It's like so we're looking at a very small window of time and. His the bulk of his work when he really hit his stride as an artist and began to create the works that we see as iconic and right. and as Van Gogh now um, was maybe three years. Like right. it's a very limited kind of window, and so I'm not sure that this approach was the was the way to go with it. I I, I agree with you. I think that that um, he, they were trying to convey. And there were moments of like there were, there, the thing that they did that I found interesting and possibly effective was where he would they would play the scene two or three different times and then they would play it all at the same time. So you're kind of in his head and he's mm-hmm. hearing different versions of the same thing all at once. Right. Things that he's saying, things that people are saying to him to try and convey somebody's descent into mental illness, into madness. I think it's a challenging uh, thing to do, and I, I think that they chose in this case to do something more interior, right? Which, which I again, like maybe they interviewed a lot of people who were dealing with since yeah. we don't know what maybe schizophrenia. I don't know, um, and so they were trying to recreate that. But I think it would have been more effective for me to see how his relationships with people and the world around him changed mm. than to try and play act right. what's going on inside of his head for me in a way that, you know, it's like those headache commercials where they, they put a drain in somebody's face. It's like, yeah. well, I guess that's a thing you can do, but I've never felt like there was a drain in my face. This is someone who wrote a letter to his brother every day. His, he was incredibly close to his brother, and his brother is in two scenes of the movie. Or maybe three. Most of the movie, as you pointed out, he spends alone. And I think you're right. I, I I was like, go talk to somebody. It was all these scenes of him alone in fields, running through the sun, and 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 uh, the music was jangling piano music that I, I guess was meant to connote madness. Or yeah, whatever. that scene where he actually goes to the salon in Paris and meets Gauguin. Yeah, like that was actually interesting to me. That was like, okay, this is a movie I would be interested in seeing. Where is that movie? A movie about relationships. About yeah. relationships and about him trying to t- find a place in the art world. He and his brother were very active, really shrewd observers and participants in the world of art in their own time. Right. Like, their collection that the two of them comprised is what's in the museum mm-hmm. in Amsterdam. It's That's their private collection. It still belongs to their family. And it's... An astonishing collection. It's Monet and Manet and Gauguin and Vincent van Gogh and and a whole lot of other really wonderful, some of them famous, some of them not so famous artists who they collected um, in their own time. Right. So they they were not this sort of pariah, outsider kind of, I don't know, whatever it was we were trying for here. They were much more grounded in – the art world as it existed. And Vincent was very driven 
man who was developing a style that ultimately became arguably the most famous painting style so far in mm-hmm. human history, which is, I think, a pretty significant achievement. And that he had personal struggles in and around it. Okay, well, that might be an interesting thing to include as part of his journey to get there. But they weren't in this movie. No. None of his relationships were in this movie. No, none I mean, of his art was the, in this movie. So the way the story has been told to us so far over the course of these episodes talking about him and learning about him is that, and I think you've pointed some of these things out too on this episode, is allegedly cutting off his own ear, which is the most notorious thing he's ever done, was done in response to Paul Gauguin saying that he was going to leave their communal living situation. They were friends, and Gauguin was going to leave, and whether or not... This was a this was a trend. We saw this at the museum and some of the wall displays. His brother had at one point made the same decision. I just can't live with you, Vincent. You're so difficult. You're so demanding. I have to I have to get away from right. you. Allegedly, Paul Gauguin made the same decision, and in the course of this fight, Vincent cuts his ear off. Um, and even that seems to be like maybe his earlobe. Yeah. So none of that is addressed. Like, what happens is they have this, he and Gauguin have this terse scene where Gauguin says he's leaving, and Vincent gets really upset, and then when we cut to Vincent in an asylum being talked to with breathtaking condescension by a therapist character, and we're off in this sort of pretentious discussion, monologue about art that is, again, completely divorced from the relationships that that he has or doesn't have in his life at that given time. There's no real attempt to say... Like, there's no real attempt to engage with the biography of his life, even if it is to question it. It's just sort of there as placeholders and setups for these long monologues about art that maybe appeal to, I guess, art historians. But when it comes to answering questions about who was this man and what was his life like, I don't think the movie succeeds in any respect. I don't think it actually gets, I don't even think it seeks to answer those questions. No, it is about establishing some sort of. Uh, agenda, some sort of narrative in and around Vincent's transcending earthly concerns mm. and his art being his connection to a gateway into eternity. Hence mm. the kind of absurd and, and completely irrelevant title that has no real connection to Vincent van Gogh's life at all. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess. I mean, it seems to me that's what it was about servicing, which means this movie was about... Schnabel and right. not about Van Gogh. Exactly. exactly. Which is, you know, then make a biography or an yeah. autobiography um, and not a movie about Vincent Van Gogh because this movie wasn't really about Vincent Van Gogh. No. It was, there were some interesting, beautiful moments like his getting to a certain place so that he could see the vista that he was going to mm-hmm. paint. Those, there were some. You know, that was lovely. I yeah. I didn't hate every moment of it. Willem Dafoe is a good actor. You know right. what I mean? And there were moments that I didn't I didn't just despise it, but I just felt at the end it just left me sort of cold. Like there was no sort of there was no through line. No. You know, there was no I didn't I don't know that I would be I would be hard pressed to break this into three acts. Like yeah. this was just all act two. Right. Like even the ultimate even Vincent's death is just sort of like, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. that sort of happens. Like we go from one moment where he's alive and then there's, and then he's lying on an hors d'oeuvre table with his paintings right. and in a shop somewhere. Was and like, I couldn't tell if that was supposed to be a dream sequence or something. No real. idea. I, you know, like the relationship with his brother was so close that his brother barely outlived him. And that's not addressed. We don't see anything like that. His brother's wife takes over the legacy and builds him up to be who he is eventually, sells the paintings in a strategic way, transcribes his letters. She's never in the movie. We just see that on the written on the screen after the movie. So everything that was that all the information that the movie provided was printed on the screen. Yeah. At the end of the movie. Totally. There was no real and there were even long periods where it was just him talking in darkness. There was not even anything on the screen at all. Yeah. Just, I, I don't know what they were trying for, but it was not, it had nothing to do with Vincent van Gogh, whatever it, it was. It feels like as a storyteller, and I've never tried to do a, a biopic or, or tell a life story, right. a real life story. I think it would be very hard. It's very hard, and it's like you have two choices to do. I'm going to go the full ride. I'm going to break it down into three acts their whole life, or I'm going to zero in on one moment 
that I think is illuminative, if that's a word, illuminates who this person was. Yeah. And I treat that moment as the whole three-act story, right, with the beginning and the middle right. and the end. Uh, and, and this one did neither. Did was, none of those was, things. And I, and I felt it, it gave itself permission to be that disorganized by saying, well, I'm, I'm, we're depicting madness. We're depicting his mental illness. And it was like, yeah. But they weren't. Yeah. Because what they were really doing was providing different platforms for Willem Dafoe's Van Gogh character to hold forth in these page-long monologues about belief about being an artist mm -hmm. and humanity and reality, which is, again, seems to be more about the director than it is about the subject of the movie because right. none of them were from the writings of Vincent Van Gogh. Willem Dafoe is 63 years old, or he was when this movie was made. Van Gogh was 37 when he died. I thought that was another big problem because William Defoe is playing this like an almost bitter, burnt-out artist, whereas Van Gogh was this sort of still young man who could just not throw his arms around the world the way he wanted to. But he was trying. Yeah. And with he... unbelievable tenacity. There was a moment where they said in that last two months of his life where he was in, I'm going to call it the Auvergne because I, I don't have more than that. Um <laughs> There's, it's French words. Look yeah. them up. They're very right. interesting. I don't sure. know how There's to say There's a whole it. podcast on don't how to say to French them. things. Yes. Go find um, it. Uh, but they said he painted 80 canvases during yeah. that two-month period right. while he was there. Like, oh, my God. That is somebody who is on fire with life and with art and with creativity. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. <laughs> So uh, the most. So have you seen any other movies that you like? <laughs> <laughs> Something else you want to talk about for the next forty-five minutes? I'll, I'll, I, I thought. Well, we can go through the fact versus fiction. Yes. The, yeah. Let's do that. That's... Because the most controversial thing the movie does is it posits that Vincent Van Gogh did not shoot himself, but yeah. that he was accidentally murdered by two boys. And I've heard this more than once. That was the most interesting part of the movie to me because that is a new theory of Vincent's death, that he did not kill himself. There is not evidence to suggest that he would. Like, as we were just talking about, this is... He painted 80 canvases during that time period, and then he shot himself? Like, how did those two things go together? Yes, it, it, it posits a sort of manic state that might have devolved into depressive, but that still doesn't explain that choice. And he didn't, like, the way that he shot himself, like, he didn't put the gun to his temple and he shot himself in the stomach. Like, imagine taking a gun and shooting yourself yeah, here. right. And not even killing yourself. Right. And then walking an enormous... That's the part. Walking back to the village. To that try doesn't make any to sense. To try and get yeah. help and to save yourself. He didn't die from the gunshots initially. He died from the aftermath of trying to recover from the gunshots. So I think... It, and then... And then, and as I say, this needs to be... I think I mentioned it last week. This maybe is another true crime TV club. Mm -hmm. We find it wherever it was I saw this. But but there there is actual emerging evidence of young men who he knew and was familiar with in the community and who might well have been responsible because there was he didn't own a gun there was no gun like there was mm. like none of those things were in evidence to support the killing himself theory so i think there is real validity in looking at the possibility that it was an accident right and i don't know to me there is suggestions in and around Vincent, his relationship with his brother, his relationship with Paul Gauguin, 
um, his relationship with those young men, his relationship with a lot of other men, to suggest that there may have been some other things going on with Vincent Mm -hmm. in the Mm -hmm. time period. I'm not saying that he was gay, but he may have been more sexually conflicted or exploring other aspects of sexuality that might have put him into contact with other people and at risk of um, violence or Mm -hmm. um, abusive behavior. And that seems to me to have been more interesting to explore because, like, there's not these this great romance. Mm-mm. Like, when he cut off his ear, it was for Paul Gauguin, and he took it to a woman and asked her to give it to him. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't for her. He was not—there was not a big show of interest for women or about women in his life. And so— I don't know. I don't know what that says exactly, but I know the time period and I know it's like when I saw that movie. um, Oh, God, I hate to even remember the title because it made me so angry. Beautiful Mind, Mm -hmm. where they just cut out the part that the guy was gay. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just left it out. Man, wrestling with his identity and with his struggle to establish his own um, personality in a world. And mm-hmm. they just made it all that it was all about his relationship with the wife who left him and didn't get back together with him until the movie came out. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, that it, it leaves out a big part of somebody's life story mm-hmm. to leave all of that out. He's wrestling with struggling to figure out who he is and his identity. Yeah, right. And we're just not going to mention this huge component of his life. Like who was Vincent Van Gogh's girlfriend? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like yeah. I've never seen that posited at all. I'm not saying he was gay, but he does seem to be conflicted about his identity and struggling to find out who he was. And that might've been an interesting thing to explore mm-hmm. in this, his incredibly emotional response, even if it was just cutting off his earlobe right. to a man leaving him. Right. That seems like worth looking into. Yeah. And if a couple of local toughs, you know. So the scene in the movie, which completely confused me because I wasn't expecting it, is Vincent's out painting in the in the fields as he's been doing the whole film. And these two boys come up. One of them is dressed as Buffalo Bill. And they're horsing around with this gun. And they get in his space, which is really odd because there's nobody else out there. Uh-huh. And then the gun goes off and Vincent gets shot. So that's what the movie tells you probably right. really happened. They were These guys were fooling around and... and um, you know, whatever. I, I think that you raised an interesting point, which is Julian Schnabel kind of made a movie about himself. Absolutely. This is totally about Julian Schnabel. And, and that's the risk of making a movie about somebody else. You know what I mean? Is that the artist makes it about themselves. It has to be run right. through the filter of what yeah. you're perceiving. And I think that is really challenging. Yeah. The thing about the sexuality of artists and anyone from that period that is challenging to determine is that there was an enormous amount of self-censorship going on when it came to letters and diaries. Yes. Nobody was going to write about that stuff. Never. And so what happens is you get in this position where contemporary historians look back and say, well, he went out with a woman this one time and he went, I went out with women and I'm gay as a French horn today. You know, so like I, you know, there, <laughs> yes, I said a French horn. <laughs> I, I just, you know, I want to yeah. reach out to the French horn community <laughs> and say nobody, nobody is trying to assign a label I, I, to you. It's fine. Your sexuality is a matter of your own I'm personal. talking about the horn, not the horn player. I know exactly the what you're talking about. The horn and the horn player are different people. Anyway, but they, they'll hold this up. I mean, I think, and you see this with a lot of controversial historical figures, Edward II, the king of England, terrible king of England, admittedly. Um, other people, uh, but there was... The, or historically. Yeah, historically. You know, like my favorite take on is Napoleon's, that, yeah. that history is the lies we can all agree to. Totally. And I think there's more truth to that than yeah. maybe anything else ever said about history. And who writes the history? The people who and won. The, and in the medieval times, if we're going to go back that far, the people writing the history were the monks. And if you pissed off the monks for any reason, they said shit about you that made uh-huh. you sound terrible. And sometimes you pissed them off for a very specific reason, which is that you had a male favorite. You were parading around right. court and you weren't doing what they wanted you to do. Yeah. Um, one of the things that convinced me that David was who I thought David was... When I was writing the more context, give people more. context. Okay, You're I wrote talking, a book yeah. called a, "The Prince A Prince's Psalm." Mm-hmm. The no, Prince's the Prince's Psalm. God, Eric, get the title of your own book right. Jesus Christ, <laughs> Jesus dude. Jesus Christ, PR one hundred and one. I'm telling you, um, about 
the uh, relationship that I believe existed between David and Prince Jonathan. Right. Um, that is written about. I think very clearly and without much masking yeah. in the Bible. And the re- one of the reasons that I believe that as strongly as I do is that the part of the Bible where that story is told was commissioned by David's family and written by scholars that they hired to write the story. And if they wanted to hide that mm-hmm. he— their souls were joined as one soul because he loved him better than his own soul. Like Mm -hmm. if they wanted to hide that, they just didn't have to include it. Right. I just feel like those kinds of the, the history is written or Richard the third is another great example. Like was he as terrible as he was Mm -hmm. or did they just make him out to be terrible because they killed him and took his kingdom? Like, yeah, mm, it's hard. It's, it's, and Edward the second is the same story. Like, so you have to make him seem bad or, you killed somebody great and took their kingdom, and then you're a bad person. There's another thing that happens with military leaders, which is what all those people you just mentioned are. Excuse me, I got excited and knocked my microphone. Very. If um, if they lost a lot in battle, then they were terrible, and everybody says horrible things about them. If they won a lot in battle, everybody washes over all the horrible things about them. Right. So Edward III, Edward the Second's son, he won a lot in battle. So he was great. So he was great. Everything he did was wonderful. Edward the Second really did not take on the Scots in the way that the kingdom wanted him to because he probably thought it was an unwinnable war that he had inherited. And so he lost hard at the Battle of Bannockburn. And so everything else he did was tainted by that loss. So, But we're talking about Van Gogh was not a military leader. No, he wasn't. But, but he was dealing with that. The, we're dealing with an understanding of him that is filtered through the lens of history. Right. Which is what people maybe want to believe about somebody or have heard about somebody, but not necessarily what actually happened. Um, there is a story, J.C. Decker, who I think I've talked about um, before on the podcast, was the, he was the artist who was in charge of the illustrations on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post before Norman Rockwell. He right. was actually Norman Rockwell's mentor. And he was widely known to be gay at the time. It wasn't anything like what we would call out today. Did he own a French horn? He owned a French horn. His and a holiday His primary club. model was um, his boyfriend, Scott Beach. And they had a big house on Long Island, and they had gay parties, and people came from all over, and everybody knew there were a couple. And, uh, when, and he invented Santa Claus. And he invented Santa Claus. Norman Rockwell invented Santa Claus. No. Oh, really? Was it Liondecker? Liondecker yeah. actually drew, like, the, the guy wrote the story and yeah. the, um, wrote that the rhyme, the Twas the Night Before Christmas, and he drew right. the picture, and that became what we believe Santa Claus is. So when he died, or when he was on his deathbed, his first, or his last words, close to his last words to his boyfriend were, burn our letters. How many people do you think probably did yeah, that? Everybody. How many artists? How many led? Because you just couldn't have that get out. You just couldn't have it get out. If you had it, if you were had the balls to put it to a letter to begin with, or put it to paper to begin with, and to have kept them that they right. were around to burn was pretty remarkable. Right. That was brazen because they would have had a much bigger effect while you were alive. Yeah. Than afterwards, but yeah. So like you might write the letter, but then you burned it immediately upon reading. Burn them after yeah. reading. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, but like, okay, and that was the that is the movie we'd make about Van Gogh, but that would be us filtering Van Gogh's life through, through our own our perspective. Own, what are we perceiving? Because I can't I can't perceive of why you would cut your ear off for another man if it wasn't some form of romantic love. I mean, that's really, obsessive and insane, but yeah. still, yeah. I yeah. mean, it seems that that's a pretty powerful expression of your feelings for somebody. And their departure to right. cut off a part of your body and ask somebody to send it to them right. to convince them. As he even, was it in this that he admitted that he was trying to manipulate him into to coming back? Or? I don't, I remember in, this, in the special we discussed last week, the host took the position that it was a form of emotional blackmail against Gauguin. Okay, so maybe that was it. Maybe right. it wasn't in this movie. There's been a lot of Van Gogh recently, so. But it was very hard blurry. to live with Van Gogh. That was really clear. Apparently. Yeah. Apparently. What else did the fact or fiction thing have to say? So it's up in the air about him dying, but I think they're, you, it, we're beginning to make the case for he did not shoot himself. Well, the authors of this piece do not agree. They say that's the most apocryphal detail in the movie. They say to historical scholars, the accepted consensus is that he shot himself in the chest. But since nobody witnessed the act, this outcome could certainly be in the realm of possibility. But as it stands... Van Gogh's suicide has been met with little skepticism. That's the opinion of this author of this piece. Uh-huh. 
The depiction of Van Gogh's mental illness and hospitalization was accurate. There remains no consensus as to what illness Van Gogh suffered from, but as depicted in the film, his mental state greatly deteriorated during his time in Arles. There it is, Arles. Beginning with the infamous incident in which he cut off one of his ears, triggered by a row with Paul Gauguin, Van Gogh was prone to periodic breakdowns during which he would disassociate from reality. At Eternity's Gate sticks true to the details regarding his continued hospitalization during the last years of his life. Okay, I don't think that's really um, earth-shattering. This was something I think we talked about earlier. Van Gogh wasn't quite as much of an outcast as he is in the film. The film focuses uh, closely on the negative responses to Van Gogh's work and how the people surrounding him didn't understand him. But in truth, Van Gogh was far from an outcast in Parisian art circles and kept up vigorous correspondence with several of his peers throughout his time in Arles. Other than Gauguin, Van Gogh was close with Paul Signac and Emile Bernard, among others. Never heard of them in this movie. He also received more than one favorable review in his lifetime and had several works shown at a prestigious salon in Paris and Brussels. So um, that's kind of it. I mean, there's another piece. Although Van Gogh was financially reliant on his brother Theo, he did make some money selling his own work. Theo was incredibly important to his older brother, providing a great deal of emotional and financial support, giving him a weekly envelope of money and acting as his art dealer. However, the myth that Van Gogh only ever sold one painting in his lifetime isn't true. While his art didn't equip him with the resources to be financially independent, he did sell work here and there throughout his life. According to the Van Gogh Museum, the exact number of work Van Gogh sold is not known, but between, a, between paintings, commissions, and a lot of typos in this article, Time Magazine, but between paintings, commissions, and drawings, it was more than a couple. That seems like a tiny distinction. Like if you're starving and you're broke and your art can't support you in any way and you sold one or two or three canvases over your course of your career that's still that the emotional impact of that on the artist can be the same yeah i again these all tend to be pretty superficial details and Mm -hmm. it speaks to the the lack of depth in the film itself right like taking up any of these things and exploring them and exploring the effect on him like I think just exploring the effect of absinthe on him right. might be interesting um, to have some understanding. Um, you know, it's it's yeah. a thought. Like I, I just I would I would have been so much more interested to see a more sort of traditional storytelling kind of thing, a, a through line. A, a, we start at point A and we get to. He's dead. Okay, mm-hmm. so and we're only going to look at this one small part of his life, you know, and then we tell the story of the things that happened and what he was doing, and we allow the audience the respect to um, make some of those judgments for themselves. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? So what's the Van Gogh movie you would have made, Eric Shockwin? I think it would have been the story of a re- of a man who drove himself crazy because he was driving himself so hard mm. to be somebody who he wanted to be. Like, this was a man who was trying to be something really hard and came up with this amazing result and, you know, maybe drove himself kind of nuts. Like, one of the things that is worth noting to me about his life is how productive he was while he was in the mental hospital. Mm -hmm. The irises that we all love were painted in the mental hospital. Mm -hmm. The picture that sold the most 
was the doctor he was staying with who was treating him in the Auvergne. Mm-hmm. That's the most valuable thing he ever that so far that has been sold. That that portrait of Doctor Gateau or whatever it right. was. Um, that's you know like it was he even those things did not slow him down. Mm-hmm. He was driven to his art, and I think that can be like. As an artist, I get that. Mm-hmm. I think any of us can get that with work. Right. Like, whether you're an artist or whatever it is you do, if you are so driven to create or do whatever it is you are disposed to do, whatever wherever your genius lies, if it's mathematics or right. whatever, um, cooking, pastry, chefery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is chefery a word? <laughs> I hope so. It should be. Chefery. Yeah. His pastry chefery. Um you know, you can drive yourself nuts. That that um, that adorable boy from oh, it's the 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 new television show is called Bear. It's a half hour TV show, and he's working in his family's loose meat sandwich shop or something, mm, and mm-hmm. he's driving himself crazy trying to make it the best sandwich shop in the world. To try and in in this story, I think is to um, to try and uh make it up to his family that he went to pursue his career as a Michelin chef. Uh-huh. He's now taking, bringing all of those talents to bear and making the sandwich. Oh, he was in that um, Bill Macy television show, Emmy Shameless, Lawson. yeah. Shameless, he played Lip. Right. That that actor, who I quite like. Um, it's, it's not my favorite show, but it is an example of somebody being driven by whatever it is that drives them to a place of almost self-destructive behavior. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's... Jeremy Allen White. Jeremy Allen White. I just think he is a mm-hmm. fine little actor and a dreamboat. Yeah. Besides, I, I'm i looking forward to more significant things than the bear. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> although it's hugely popular, I'll probably be mm-hmm. very, like, at don't at me, mm-hmm. as they say. <laughs> I'll probably be at it over saying that, because people really sure. do love that show. I thought it was a little trivial. People but, love a lot of stuff that's crap. Yeah, that I don't like. Um yeah. And that doesn't make it crap, but it does mean I don't like it. Um, so I think that's kind of the direction I would have gone with it. It takes as much of me out of the equation as it's possible for that to be. Mm-hmm. Like I always say of the books that I write, because I write fiction, all of the characters are me. How right. could they not yes, be? Absolutely. And I think that's always the case with an artist. But if I just focus on the, the knowable things about his life and let them unfold, it gives the audience the opportunity and the actors the opportunity to bring something to the experience and sure. draw their own conclusions. So it's not just me lecturing them, because this was very much like a lecture. It was like a lecture. I couldn't stand the, it for the, that reason. Bill Willem Dafoe was basically, it was just a series of things. Even sometimes, like I said, complete darkness on the screen and just Willem Dafoe Lecturing That's how us, the movie opens. Lecturing us about stuff. Uh, the movie opens telling that us how way. to feel and what to believe. It's a black screen, and then you hear him lecturing, and I immediately thought, oh, God, oh, what have I done? Yeah. I picked this. I it suggested was a, it this. It was very much a lecture of whatever Mr. Schnabel thinks about yeah. being an artist, and I don't know that that's not valid. It just wasn't something that I was interested in seeing, and I would encourage him to stick to painting or sculpture or whatever it is that he does besides filmmaking. Um. Yeah. Anyway... I guess the next question is, what movie about Van Gogh would you have made? I would have made a a movie solely about the relationship with his brother and the introduction of of the wife. Yeah. Because if that story of my brother is devoted to me and he's now pursuing his own relationship and his marriage and and it has left him without the time to support the inordinate demands placed on him by my mental struggles— that's a really compelling story. I mean, a brother who is so distraught over the death of a sibling that he doesn't live very much longer, most of the siblings I know can't be in the room for longer than five minutes. That's an extraordinary relationship. Yeah. And then you're introducing the woman who has been erased from a lot of these biopics and depictions of his life who went on to build his legacy. Who made both of them famous. She made both of them famous. And the decision to do that, if she's feeling like she lost her husband in some respect to his brother, you know, like the, the humility it takes to be able to do that, to be willing to do that. What were her opinions about the art? What was her connection to the art? I would have made the movie about the three of them, you know, almost like a, I don't know the right term I'm looking for, but it's almost like, you know, one ball knocks into the next, knocks into the next. It starts with Vincent, it turns into a movie about Theo's grief, and then it turns into the story of Joanna's response to both of their 
that collective loss. Yeah. Um, and that's what, you know, because I was just, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by sibling relationships because I never had one. I'm an only child. And so I, I always thought how remarkable it could be if you did get along with your siblings because you would be so much less lonely. But I very rarely, as I just said, meet people who are, have, are really close with their siblings the way they were, writing letters every day. Well, your mom... Yeah, my mom and her sister Karen lived together for many years, but that was almost like a mother-daughter relationship. Karen was so much younger than her, and she yeah. was so, you know, that that's that's true. But you know, some of the other relationships not as close. Yeah, you know, you yeah. Know. No, it is it is a more challenging thing. I think the thing that I love best about that idea is that it would create the context for them because these were three very connected driven, knowledgeable, sophisticated participants in the world of art. Right. They were living in Paris and dealing art mm -hmm. and knew all of these really famous artists and uh, collected, had one of the most amazing art collections that they were building at the time from unknown contemporary artists who turned yes. out to be Manet and Monet and Isaacs and all of the rest of them. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. That's, that's not nothing. And I don't actually like stories where you do not see the artist in context. I know that's a tendency to have them just alone with their process. I don't think you can really illuminate them if they're not bumping into other people. And that's what I felt like. I felt like he wasn't really, his character was not engaging with the other characters. Particularly someone who was, as we saw again at the museum, as connected with other artists as he was. Yeah, right. He, they, There were whole exhibits at the Van Gogh Museum where... All he where Vincent would paint the same subjects as other artists. So yes. you would get all of their different takes on how to paint apples or how to paint. You know, it was it was a really fascinating sort of study where you saw this group of people creating a whole new school, right. if you will, of art. I also believe, and this may sound like superficial, but it's pretty clear that Vincent was a remarkably handsome man. And he was a younger man than Willem Dafoe. And I think taking into account the treatment that would have accorded him in certain circles, like I think you see a lot in this movie of he's this crazy old guy running around the fields. People are repelled by him. Women are recoiling from There's some interest from women early on who seem, but it's he's he's like the village, I don't want to use the word freak, but I can't think of anything better. I don't think that's how people were reacting to Vincent. I think they were probably inviting him in because he had a charisma to him and he had good looks to him. And then when the extent of his mental struggles became clear, they were forced to react. And that may have been what Gauguin was going through by choosing to leave or, or his own brother. Or they may have been in denial about it yeah. because, of the, because of how he looked and the relationship they wanted to have. People often project what they want right. onto people and don't see them for who they actually are, which would not have been a service no. to somebody who was dealing with severe mental uh, illness. He... The, the the case in point is that that he went to Arles, I guess it is, right. and um, went to a bar, and those people cleaned up and rented him a house right. to begin to develop into uh, an arts colony. If he was some lunatic um, fringe village idiot yeah. in their restaurant, would they have done the things that they did? In and around him, property was valuable. That was not nothing. That was an investment in who he was and in his art. And that that doesn't seem to match up with the story that was being told to us. No. In this, he was a beautiful, talented, driven man. Right. Who had some a dark side, very possibly, you know, he, he didn't accidentally go to um, a, a an insane asylum. It no. It wasn't nothing. But, like, yeah, chasing children, inability to... Exp explain himself or mm -hmm. in any way participate that incident where he gets in the fight with the children or that thing where he was asking that woman to hold still because yeah. he wanted to paint her was so ill-explained and mm -hmm. I, I don't know if that there was any truth to it or it was just an example of something that that was part of the lecture that we were yeah. receiving but but there was no context for it and it doesn't match up with what seems to have been the truth of this man this tragic figure this art this romantic and mm -hmm. and tragic artistic figure who had the life that he had some of the details may be unclear maybe he shot himself maybe somebody else shot him i don't right, know right right but it doesn't seem to have been 
an interest to this filmmaker. Mm-mm. He was interested in making points about something. I'm not entirely sure what, but I think about, I think my guess with the, that title was that it was about the way in which one's art makes you immortal. They even have a conversation right. in the movie with where they're talking with him about, somebody is talking with him about, I can't remember who, but about your art will live beyond you. Mm-hmm. You know, I will do the things that I do and that will be my life and then I will be gone. But once, but the the things that you are creating will live on. I, there's a, there is an interesting conversation between him and Gauguin, who's played by Oscar Isaac, who you can play yeah, just about Nothing anything. sorry about, Oscar not Isaac sorry can, to see Oscar Isaac. I play my biopic. That's Oscar right, Isaac. Um, uh, Gauguin is saying, why do you only paint what's in front of you? Right, these landscapes. You're painting right. what's literally physically in front of you. Paint what's in your head. And Van Gogh's response is, I am painting what's in my head because my version of that tree is different. You say something yeah. like this all the time. My version of that tree is different from the version that you see I'm or the version she see. sees. I see the version of that tree. It's my tree. It is what's in my head. Mm-hmm. And I think that conversation goes to the place of, for that reason, my tree will be immortal because it is terminally unique or my version of the tree will live forever. It will live on after Right, death. even yeah. after I'm gone, right. who I am will be, yes, I think you're right, that is the context that it comes up. But I think that seems to have been what this was a lecture about. Yeah, totally. To me, about the way in which one's art, the things one creates, gives one immortality. Like, right. we're still talking about Vincent. Nobody has ever stopped talking about Vincent. You know, How much the, of that do you think is the painting... And how much of that do you think is the narrative of the tragic artist who couldn't get what he wanted in his life and killed himself? I don't think there's any separating them. Like, um, I think James Dean was in, like, three movies. Mm-hmm. And he did, they were fine, I guess. Like, right. I don't care for Rebel Without a Cause. I don't really get it. Um, but seems popular. Giant was fun, but, you know, I... Yeah, okay. And... Mm-hmm. I'm hard pressed east of Eden. Is that mm-hmm. it? I don't know, but there wasn't. A, it isn't a great body of work. He died very young, very tragically, and a lot of questions about him personally, right? In and around the sides, and so he's achieved this sort of mythic status in the film community and the film world without ever really doing very much. Like mm-hmm. I'm not. I don't want to denigrate the work that he did. I, I think that, you know, like it was, I liked it. I thought Jet Rink was, you know, hot and interesting and well wrought. And, you know, like I, I think he did a fine job of the stuff that he did, but he didn't do much, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, but he did a, a really fine job of it. And actors are still compared to him and still trying for that James Dean affect, even though I'm not even sure what that is. So I don't know that it's possible to take Vincent van Gogh and Vincent van Gogh's very short, very tragic, very romantic, artistic life and separate them and say, which is which. I think right. I think the fact that he was so well-respected as an artist by his peers in his own lifetime mm-hmm. speaks to the quality of his work. But I think a lot of artists die in obscurity right? Um, who are very well-respected by other people, um, the Eva Cassidy story that I'm mm-hmm. always so fond of, the the singer who sang that amazing version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow that became the number one song in the world after she was dead, mm-hmm. you know, just through a strange confluence of events. So I don't, Shakespeare, not as big a hit during his lifetime as he was after he was gone. I don't think he was, you know, he right. did okay, but he wasn't the world-renowned phenom that he is phenom that he is now the author of confederacy of dunces john kennedy tool is yeah, that his name not published at yeah. all during his lifetime and god it breaks my heart i that book is so wonderful and to think that there will never be another one is just that's just a tragedy for the world and so i think those things are you know i think that that's part of it but i think there is a certain intrigue and romance to that marilyn monroe thing of like Gone too soon. Like mm-hmm. it create you don't have the chance to really fuck up. Right. Or yeah. to drift off into obscurity or irrelevance or to become some fat old fuck. You know? 
living off his reputation and not right. really creating anything new and, mm-hmm. you know, diddling young whatevers yeah. and being yeah. the sort of horrible old wretch that, that you became. You know what I mean? <laughs> like you, that can really, that can really p- yeah. drag down a career. Right. Um, yeah. Which you don't ever have the time to do if you died young and left a beautiful corpse. Right. You're just this beautiful, tragic, romantic figure. So next week we're wrapping up April Showers Bring Van Gogh Flowers month with another true crime TV club. We're going back to the YouTube Real Stories channel, which is a storehouse of older documentaries that we've visited before on this podcast. The the show we're going to serve up for you is called Stealing Van Gogh, the greatest art heist of the 21st century. We're going to go back to the Van Gogh Museum, I think with a vengeance this time. We went to the Van Gogh Museum we last did, month. Although been, we did not take a ladder and a hammer. We didn't take anything. We're not admitting to anything. We're not alluding to anything. We were. We did visit the gift shop, but we paid for everything we left with. We have receipts. Um, and so, as usual, True Crime TV Club disclaimer, if you want to watch the special in advance, you can, of course, but you do not need to to understand what we are going to be talking about next week so i think we have um we're not recommending at eternity's gate if you're looking for a movie I mean, about van gogh we would be in, i'd be interested in other people's opinions of it i i i'm always you know mindful of the fact that i love so like i love middle brow murders and you don't mm-hmm. like you know what i mean like i that i am mindful of the fact that that everybody has their own everybody brings their own relationship to whatever work of art that they're viewing and so the fact that i don't like it doesn't mean that it's not that it's not relevant or worth worth seeing but it did not seem to me to stand up very well as a, a portrait of uh, of the artist that it i thought was purporting to um to depict indeed indeed and so until next week Forever after, Christopher is ready. To we be made done it through a movie. whole episode of talking about this movie that neither one of us liked. Yay us! We have a lot to say about a lot of different things, even the stuff. Well, that and I think there was us. a lot to be discussed here because Vincent Van Gogh was ultimately the subject of this podcast yes. and not that movie. Yes, and I think there is a question with historical fiction, which is what this was: Are you addressing in any sort of, I don't know if organized is the right word any competent uh, way with the body of knowledge about a person? Are you addressing some of the more interesting questions? I know some people will think some questions are more interesting than others. Right. And for me, nothing that intrigues me about Van Gogh and his story was really adequately addressed by this movie. But even you and I, when saying what movies would we have made, would have made different movies. Exactly. So it's it it you know the eye of the beholder is an important part of every artistic interaction and creation. Absolutely. So now, ending on a more positive note, until then and forever after. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice and I'm Eric Shaw Quinn and you're listening to TDPS presents Christopher and Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.